Welcome to Intersect, where church meets culture. My name is Josh Desch. I'm the lead pastor at Northeast Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. And I am joined, as always, by my sophisticated wife, Betsy. Oh, thank you. Hey, everybody. (laughs) And folks, we are beyond thrilled and honored to have the renowned David French joining us today. David, thank you for being here. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So folks, uh, we know that many of you know who David French is, his influence, his platform, but let me just say a few things. Some of this I got off Wikipedia, so it has to be right. Um, <laughs> but it's David French is an American political commentator, theologically conservative Christian, and former attorney who has argued high-profile religious liberty cases. That's straight from Wikipedia. He's been interviewed on MSNBC. He's debated Eric Metaxas. And now he works for The Dispatch and continues uh, to write for The Atlantic. He's the author of at least four books that I could find out, the most recent one being Divided We Fall, American America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. And uh, I first became aware of David through podcasts. Bets, you and I are both huge podcast listeners. Sure. And David is on, I would recommend all of these podcasts as just fascinating, interesting podcasts. One is called The Dispatch, uh, which he is with Sarah Isger, Steve Hayes, and Jonah Goldberg. The one that I really started listening to with David, what is it called Advisory Opinions? David and Sarah Isger talk about all things related to the law. And uh, I could have seen myself going to law school if I didn't become a pastor. And even though I have no professional law background, this is such a good podcast for getting into what the Supreme Court is doing. What do these decisions uh, mean? How, how are these decisions being argued? I love that podcast. And then probably the one that relates the most to our audience is one called Good Faith with his co-host Curtis Chang, which is a fabulous podcast. Just had some great ones on financial stewardship other things, fascinating uh, and excellent podcast. So I would recommend all those. David, I probably said like 5% of of everything. But also David's married to Nancy. They have three kids, I believe, and they live in Franklin, Tennessee. Yes, that's right. And uh, and I am going to say, you know, I don't like to brag, but uh, the Advisory Opinions podcast is the greatest legal podcast in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> it is. You and Sarah are amazing. You guys have great rapport. It's funny. It's engaging. Everybody should listen to that podcast. Okay. Well, Sarah really, Sarah really makes it because she's she's got just a really uh, delightful approach and. Uh, yeah, it's it's a fun podcast, and that's not to denigrate the others. I love the Dispatch podcast, and Curtis is fantastic on Good yeah, Faith. Yeah. Uh, his our most recent one, as we're recording this, was uh, about anxiety and really thought provoking stuff about anxiety. So, um, yeah, I I appreciate you uh, bringing those up. And probably like the throwaway thing, the last I just remembered this is like, oh yeah, David went to Harvard Law School too. So oh. <laughs> there's that. Um, okay, David and, and all of this folks, what I admire about this man is his humble, thoughtful, biblical approach to issues that are so often not black and white. They're not things that can be just handled in one quick tweet or something like that. And so we're going to jump into a, a significant topic today. The title of the podcast is, Why is American Evangelicalism Fracturing? So David, the first couple things we want to hear from you is, would you have a basic definition of evangelicalism, at least as it exists here in America? And what, in your opinion, has held this movement together you know, maybe for the last four, five, six decades, and then what are we seeing happening before our eyes right now? Yeah, that's boy. You're you're raising a really great and important question right off the start. What is an evangelical? And the answer to that is it depends. <laughs> it depends on it depends on who's asking and in what context. So if you're going to look at an, um, for example, when you hear about the quote unquote evangelical vote. Mm-hmm. Who, who are those people? Um, that is generally white Americans who are asked in an exit poll, are they evangelical, evangelical or born again? So when you hear about the evangelical vote turning out 
for Donald Trump, say 81% or whatever. That is not a theological test. No one asks them what they believe about the inerrancy of scripture or how often they go to church or anything like that. They just simply ask them, if they're white, um, are you evangelical or born again? So when you hear the evangelical vote, those are self-described white Americans who are self-described as evangelical. Mm -hmm. Then there's a whole other question that is not an exit poll question, and that's about 25 or so percent of the American electorate. Then there's another question where you ask a person of any ethnicity at all, are, are you evangelical? In other words, there's a that question is asked again, regardless of of you know church attendance, theology, etc. And sometimes the numbers there can hit as high as say 35 percent. So those are people of all ethnicities. Well, then you drill it down and you say, well, who belongs to evangelical churches? In other words, they're affiliated with churches that have been traditionally deemed evangelical, like the Southern Baptist Church or the PCA or you name it. Then that number goes down to maybe around 15%. And these are all rough numbers because they fluctuate, right? Mm -hmm. But then you ask, okay, what do you believe? In other words, what are your actual theological beliefs? And Barna has a multi-point test on this. And some Barna numbers put the number of evangelicals by belief as low as 6% of Americans across all ethnicities. Wow. So the answer Mm. to how many evangelicals do you have in the United States literally varies between 6% or so and 35% of America, depending on the definition. Mm. And, And what's really important about drawing out these distinctions is that right now in the United States of America, a majority of people who describe themselves as evangelicals don't go to church very often, if at all. So mm-hmm. slightly over 50% now, who people who say they are evangelicals go to church once a month or less. And it's around 35, 40% who go once a year or less. So wow. <laughs> obviously something else is going on here aside from sort of a set of theological propositions. And one of those things that's going on is a sort of a political cultural identification. In other words, if you are a white Republican who identifies as a Christian, you're disproportionately going to say, yeah, I'm evangelical, regardless of whether or not you ever go to church. So it's a it's a very weird kind of, uh, it's a very weird sort of way of thinking through the problem because you, in many ways, you don't even know who the population is. Um, I tend to prefer to think of evangelicals in a theological sense, not in the self-identification sense. In other words, mm-hmm. if I'm thinking of the evangelical community in the U.S., I'm thinking much more of the multi-ethnic 6% than I am of sort of the white self-identified 25% or the multi-ethnic self-identified 35%. Because it's hard to know what people mean when they just say, I'm evangelical. I mean, there are people who call themselves evangelical who are Buddhists, who are Muslims, who are who are wow. Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, evangelical is a traditionally a Protestant category. It's not traditionally a Catholic category, but there are now many Catholics who identify as evangelical. So it's a it's a really flexible term unless you drill down and ask people's actual theological convictions. Hmm. David, the 6%, would that include David Bebbington's historic definition, the, this cross-centered, sharing right. your faith, inerrancy of scripture? Is that, you think, is Bebbington's bigger than 6% or is that the 6%? Yes, I would say, I would, I would put them like this. I think the Barna test is the most restrictive. Then it's the Bebbington test. Then it's the denominational affiliation test. Then it's the self-identification test, sort of in that order. Um, as from le- most restrictive to least restrictive. Got it, got it. So David, was there, as you, you you tease these out and you show us how complicated this word is, and I'm gonna ask you later if you still think it's a valuable word for conser- theologically conservative Christians to still even use, because I'm really curious to know what you think about that. What Has there been some kind of consensus that was holding these different parties together in the past? Was it just political? Was it just theological? I mean, when you kind of look back on the past, was there more unity or did we just think there was? <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, 
I do think there was, let, let me explain it this way. Um, I do believe there is a perception of more unity or at the very least, less intensity in the divisions that we had. Mm. So mm-hmm. there have obviously been divisions in the Christian faith uh, for a very, very long time. And when I say less intensity of the divisions, I'm thinking of the recent past. If you start to move decades beyond sort of the 1980s and the 1990s and you get much further back than that, then the divisions in the American Christian community writ large have been really stark and sometimes violent. But I'm talking about sort of since the rise of more politically engaged um, Protestant evangelicalism uh, with the, since the moral majority and et cetera, that there has been, uh, what I would say, it's not that evangelicalism has always been unified, because it's not been. I mean, there have been denominational differences. There have been fights over politics before now. It's that the intensity was less. It's that, and this is one thing that I hear from people all across the United States of America, they will say to me, it's not that we didn't disagree before, it's that we could disagree, we used to be able to disagree and be able to remain in fellowship, mm. and now mm-hmm. it's increasingly harder to remain in fellowship yeah. when we disagree. And I, I think that that's the difference that I'm noticing. Mm. So why why has that happened in your, I mean, I'm sure there's not just one cause, but why do you think things have gotten so hot? Yeah, um, there's so many different reasons, uh, but but let me sort of talk sociological and then I'll talk uh, spiritual, because I think they're both inextricably linked. So we're in the middle of something that is right now being called the big sort. That's not a definition that I came up with, or a term I came up with, but it was actually coined in a book by Bill Bishop that was written more than a decade ago. And what what Bishop said is that, and he, he charted this out and he demonstrated it, is that we are now much more likely to live with people of a like mind than mm. we ever used to be in, the, you know, in any time since we've been measuring the statistics. So mm. the, the percentage of Americans who live in what are called landslide counties, where one side or the other wins by 20 points or more, is the highest it's ever been. Um, and then when you actually really break this down by neighborhood, the cocoons and the bubbles that we live in become even more obvious. So just take my my neighborhood, for example. I live in Williamson County, Tennessee, which is one county south of Nashville. It's a very red part of America. But I believe Trump got a little north of 60% of the vote in 2020 here. But my neighborhood is 85% Republican. So it's my neighborhood is overwhelmingly Republican. We tend to live in neighborhoods, not everybody, there's probably some listeners right here saying, no, I my neighborhood's diverse politically, mm-hmm. but we mm-hmm. tend to live in very uniform, politically uniform neighborhoods. So then what happens when you live around people of like mind? Well, there's something else that happens, and it's called the law of group polarization. So this is a term that was uh, coined by Cass Sunstein, Uh, a law professor in 1999, and he took a look at a ton of sociological research. And what he found was when people of like mind gather, they tend to become more extreme Hmm. and without even necessarily realizing that they are. And so what's happening is that we're clustering in like-minded communities. We're becoming more extreme, say, in our political views, and we don't even realize it because to us, it's just conventional wisdom. It's just what we all believe, right? So then what ends up happening, that's the sociological reality. Then the spiritual reality is we Christians are very likely to place a religious significance on all of our views, right? Not just what we say about the Bible or what we say about, um, you know, what we say about the divinity of Jesus or the virgin birth or you name it. But we tend to believe and want to believe that all of the things that we believe flow from our faith, right? Mm -hmm. And so therefore, the increasing extremism, which is a natural byproduct, not a natural byproduct of scripture, but a natural byproduct of our human nature, our increasing extremism is then sort of baptized in our spirituality and becomes becomes part of our Christian faith. Hmm. And so this, it's a process, it's an A to B to C, 
where we become more politically extreme and believe that it is dictated by the Bible, when the reality is we've become more politically extreme because kind of our own fallen nature, that we're we're unable to really understand and even perceive necessarily all of the influences that our environment has upon us. Hmm. That's really fascinating. And David, one thing I feel like I've even observed in my lifetime is, you know, so let's take abortion. Our church is pro-life. We are opposed to abortion. Uh, Of course, we were very happy that Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court. But I know, and I'm sure you've had many conversations uh, along these same lines, that there are um, some believers, uh, brothers, dear brothers and sisters of mine, who um, cannot understand how someone would not uh, vote only along those lines. So right. that that abortion is the is the overwhelming and at the end of the day the only uh, issue that should determine anyone's political vote. And I feel like I see um, less ability to even understand a person who uh, a well-meaning, Jesus-loving, uh, mm-hmm. serving Bible believing Christian that would even to understand why they might vote uh, according to other issues. Do you feel like you've seen that intensify? Oh yeah, absolutely. I've seen that intensify. And I've actually seen it intensify in recent years as character has become less important to evangelical voters. Um, So this is something that, again, we've been able to see uh, coming out of the Clinton era and the Obama era evangelical voters would tell pollsters that they're more concerned about character than any other category of voters. In other Mm. words, if their candidate, if they saw a candidate who had serious moral failure in their lives, say adultery, or had paid for an abortion, or had engaged in, you know, domestic abuse or sexual harassment, they were more likely than any other category of voter to say that character mattered. Well, in 2016, Mm -hmm. all of that flipped completely upside down to the point where evangelical voters were least likely to say that character mattered, Hmm. that they would say um, that no matter sort of the personal flaws of a candidate, it's their issue, it's their position on the issues that matters most of all. And abortion actually was one of those issues that matters most, but Interestingly, there's some social science that says it wasn't actually the one that mattered the most in reality, that it was mm-hmm. actually immigration restrictionism that mattered more than abortion to lots of evangelical voters. But what I have seen amongst a lot of evangelicals is that they have now said, no, the thing, the test, the test is abortion rights. And if some, no matter what else somebody's past is, no matter their character in other areas, then abortion rights is the test. And Anyone who sort of disagrees with that, who sort of sees maybe other issues as salient or other issues as more salient, is fundamentally sort of failing as a Christian. Hmm. And, you know, one of my responses to that is, even if, so I'm pro-life, I have never, just to, to sort of establish where I am on, on this issue uh, for your listeners, I have never voted for a pro-choice politician in uh, federal for federal or statewide office, there mm-hmm. there might have been some local officials that have no influence on abortion. I don't even know where they're where they stand on it that I may have voted for in the past. But mm. anyone who has had any influence on abortion policy have only voted pro life. This is where I am. But I've also written in and not voted for some ostensibly pro life politicians because I thought that their character was terrible. Mm. Because I have a two part test one is a character test. You have to possess a character sufficient for the office that you seek. And the higher the office, the more character I demand from you. Mm-hmm. And you have to share my political values on a policy basis. If you fo- fail either one of those two, I, I just don't vote for you. Mm. But here's what makes this really complicated. So the goal of the pro-life movement, as I understand it, is to end abortion. It, ha- it does not succeed if it passes laws that ostensibly ban abortion, but abortion is still rampant, right? Mm-hmm. The pro-life movement is trying to save lives. That's the fundamental goal of the pro-life movement. What a lot of people don't realize is that Every president since Jimmy Carter has seen a decrease in the abortion rate in the United States, except for one, 
So during the Carter administration and the latter part of the Ford administration after Roe v. Wade was decided, there was a big spike in the abortion rate and it hit the peak in 1980-81. And then it went down through every president except one. It went down through Reagan. It went down through Bush. It went down through Clinton, who was pro-choice. It went down through Bush, who was pro-life. It went down during Obama, who was pro-choice. And it went up during Trump. Mm. Trump was Mm. the first president in 40 years to see an increase in abortion rate in their tenure. And so this stuff is complicated. It is Mm. not actually the case that abortion goes down when there's a pro-life president and up when there's a pro-choice president. Mm. It had been going down through both until Trump when it went up. But then, of course, Trump nominated the justices who overturned Roe. So Mm. these things are not as neat and simple and cut and dry as we'd like to think where this idea that says if you vote for a Democrat, you you cost you kill babies. If you vote for a Republican, you save babies. Mm. It just isn't such a straight line. Now again, I believe that abortion should be unlawful as a matter of basic justice and human rights. That mm-hmm. is my that is how I have voted. I've been a pro-life attorney my entire career. I think a a just society protects life and law and culture. Mm. But if it doesn't protect life in culture, protecting it in law is going to be insufficient to end abortion, Mm. if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Mm. So this is one of the points that I try to make with a lot of my friends who say, as soon as they hear that somebody has voted a different way from them and, and they have passionate beliefs about very important issues as abortion is, is that often when you scratch under the surface of a lot of these issues, you'll find that the underlying reality is is can get a lot more complicated. Mm. And and you know, so the question then becomes, well what do what impact do all of these other factors that you're leaving aside for the one big issue have on the country writ large or even on the one big issue that you care about the most? Mm. And so that's mm. one of the reasons why I feel like it's very important that we give Christians who are operating in good faith and who love Jesus give each other grace as we work through complex issues. So, David, I I think it's undeniable um, that, you know, we live in a a time that our country is changing so much, our world is changing so much. And so, as you referenced earlier in 2016, seeing that flip made by the evangelical vote where character all of a sudden became something that wasn't uh, deemed the most important thing, what do you think contributed to to that change in that in that vote block? A lot of fear, to be honest. So, you know, one of the things that became very clear to me, so I, I was somebody, I'm, I'm a lifelong Republican. I was a 2012 delegate to the Republican National Convention. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been cool. a conservative lawyer my entire legal career. Uh, I was pro-life attorney, pro-religious liberty, free speech, um, worked for, you know, uh, pro-life legal organizations. Um, and so, you know, one, one of the things that, that I have seen during that time is that there is an escalating environment of, of fear. Mm. Um, and so I have seen people argue, for example, that the existence of the United States is at stake if, and this is, I debated Eric Metaxas in, mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. in 2020, because I, uh, I left the Republican Party when it nominated Trump. Um, I, I couldn't be a member of a party that, in good conscience, that would put a person of such low character at the head of the institution. Mm-hmm. And so I I left the Republican Party, remain quite conservative, but left the Republican Party. But the number one thing that I began to see was that there was this overwhelming feeling of fear, mm-hmm. that character was viewed as a luxury for another kind of more peaceful or more um, a calmer time, but now the left was so bad um, that the, the so the argument went that you had to turn to extreme measures to combat the left. You had to save America by voting somebody for somebody who was going to be extremely pugilistic, mm. and so this kind of feeling of fear, which was quite uh, quite well encapsulated in a 
in a, a very influential essay written in 2016. Rush Limbaugh read it from the air. Um, it was all over a lot of conservative media, Fox News. It was called the Flight 93 essay. And the essential argument was you have to charge the cockpit of the mm. United States or you're going to die. Mm. And, mm. and so when you have that sense of emergency, a lot of people found that character arguments were going to get in the way of the overriding concern, which was beating the left. And a lot of this was based on really groundless fears. Um, I, as I said, I, I debated Eric Metaxas. I, I debated him in September 2020 over these very issues. And we we're sitting there in a Christian college, John Brown University, and, and he was arguing that if Biden won, you might not even be able to have debates like we were having at Christian mm. colleges, which was just mm. absurd, you know, just absurd. But when people are convinced that there there is a, a nine-alarm emergency, they're much more receptive to the idea that we can't we can't go, you know, we can't weaken or soften our message with civility or decency. And of course, as you know, we we know the problem with that is it's really inconsistent with New Testament Christianity, yes. in which in which, you know, this New Testament church was living under extraordinary oppression, just oppression that we can't even begin to comprehend here in the United States. And yet, what's the admonition? Relentless admonition. God did not give us a spirit of fear, Paul says. Um, we're to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Um, love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. These are relentless messages written to a Christian church that was under mortal threat, not threat of cancel culture or bad tweets, but threat to their lives. And the message was, bless those who persecute you. Love your enemies. God did not give us a spirit of fear. And yet we have a, a political environment that is soaked in fear right now. Yeah, and I was also going to add, David, as I thought through the topic that we're going to talk about today, you know, as believers, one of our number one distinctives should be an attitude of hope because we serve a God who promises to make all things right in the end, and He is our Redeemer. But so often I feel like I see Christian figures either online or wherever, so much of the way that they speak, it's snarky, it's cynical, you know, and in the yeah. name of, quote unquote, defending the truth, here you are, you're snarky, you're demeaning, and you're rude. And again, hope should be our number one distinctive as a believer in the way that we interact with people, both publicly and privately. Um, so how do you think that that hope we should have as believers can shape those interactions in the public square? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things we have to do is we have to concentrate on living the values that we seek to advance in our society. We can't just talk about it. We have to walk that talk. And so, you know, one of the things that I try to, there's a, there, there's a particular verse, in addition to God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, and it's not political mm -hmm. power talking about in that verse, but mm -hmm. faith in the power of the living God, power mm -hmm. and love Mm. And sound mind, man, that is important in our mm. conspiracy-laden culture. But mm. the other one that I think a lot about is Micah 6.8. And I think Micah 6.8 is extremely potent for this time. Mm. And it says, what do the, does the Lord require of you, O man, what is good, but to act justly? This means we can't withdraw from the world. We can't just say, oh man, all of, this, all of these justice issues that are just too contentious, we, we need to withdraw from this. Mm. Um, no, this is saying you have to lean in and engage, right? Mm. Act justly, but also love kindness. Mm. Now, how inconsistent is that with what we see on Twitter and in political engagement? Mm. And then the final thing is walk humbly before the Lord your God. So when I think of these three interlocking requirements, it really does demonstrate, I think, how Christians should walk into the public square, lead with humility, we're dealing with complicated issues for which none of us has the clear answer, you know, to quote from, quote Paul again, we see in part, we see through a glass darkly, or we know in part, we see through a glass darkly. Um, so you're coming in with humility, you're coming in with kindness, you know, loving even your enemies, right? Blessing mm -hmm. even those who persecute you, but you're still acting justly. You're still seeking to make right the wrongs of the world. And I think when you take those three interlocking imperatives, it can really, it can transform the way you interact 
without causing you to withdraw. Hmm. And because that's the very common critique I hear from Christians who are very, very aggressive in politics is, well, they're just calling on you to withdraw. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. But engage in a, in a, in a different way. Hmm. Uh, because as we know from every other way we are taught as Christians, that the way in which we interact with the world is extraordinarily important. You know, the goal of a Christian businessman isn't to just simply make as much money as he or she can. It's to treat customers, glorify Christ in the way they treat customers, glorify Christ in the way they treat their colleagues or their employees, their boss. Um, in all categories of life, we say it's not just the what, it's the how that sets us apart. Hmm. But in politics, we've kind of retreated from that. And we've said, it's just our issues. We just got to focus down on the issues. But that's not consistent with the Christian witness in any other category of life. So the how we do it matters a tremendous amount. Mm -hmm. Yeah, David, to to go back to the concept of fear uh, that we see, you know, that we can see around us, the culture is changing. It does seem like we are largely following Western Europe, maybe Europe period, in terms of greater secularity, uh, greater diminishment of... Judeo-Christian values, things that we took for granted in the past. I mean, those things do seem to be happening. I I think what Christians have to wrestle with right now is what is our response going to be to that? Is it going to be to hold on to whatever power we have had or think we have or to embrace more and more of a minority status? I mean, one of the things that I find so interesting is I think, you know, I'm pretty confident I'm going to be one of those 6% that's going to say to all the Barna questions, the, the things that line up with being an evangelical, conservative, theologically uh, conservative Christian. But 6%, when you look at that number, I don't feel so mighty anymore. So, right. I mean, uh, so talk about what you see with this, you know, obviously we're, we're surrounded by people that are saying, in my lifetime... I can't believe how much more secular and dark the country's become. What do you expect me to do? Of course, I'm going to fight back, right? Of course, I'm going to try to uh, push against that. Yeah, let's challenge some of this a little bit. So I think what we need to do is we need to draw a distinction between Christendom and Christianity. Mm. Because I'm not of the view that authentic Christianity has always been a majority position or even a majority position in the recent American past. Mm -hmm. I do think that the institutions of Christianity, sort of the identification as Christian, has obviously been more potent and more prevalent, but that's not necessarily the same thing as saying America has been a better or more just place, okay? Mm -hmm. So one of the problems that I have with the kind of narrow way that a lot of evangelical conservatives interact with – with that, with Christianity and politics, is they have very much narrowed the, air, the 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 prism through which they view the issues. So, if you're going to talk about what does it mean to be an evangelical po- in politics, you're going to hear all the time. You're going to hear about um, abortion and religious liberty. And I'm with you. I'm with you. I was a religious liberty attorney for 20 plus years. I just filed a an amicus brief in the Supreme Court on a huge religious liberty case mm-hmm. that's being argued at the end of this month. Um, so I'm with you, and as I said, I've been a pro-life attorney, but that's not the that's not the sum total of the American uh, of what American Christians should be concerned about. You know, there are many Americans who would look back, say, on the 1950s and 1960s, and say, "Boy, we had some values then." To which Black Americans would say, "Yeah," and one of them was Jim Crow, hmm. and so. You know, this sort of idea that America is on this inexorable slide towards depravity, um, I think it's, a, it's not so clear cut here. It's not so clear cut. And, and I think in many ways, America is a more just country than it used to be. If you're a member of a historically marginalized communities, you're doing better in the United States than you used to. Mm. If you say that, well, it's harder to be a Christian now than it used to be. I don't know. If you're in 1955 Alabama and you're an authentic Christian and you're speaking out against the grotesque injustices that you saw around you at that time, you had a lot more to worry about Mm. than tweets. Mm. You had a news to worry about. You had beatings to worry about. And so 
it's not as so neat and clean as you might think. Um, so what I what I think of is we've had a diminish. What we're seeing is a diminishing Christendom. In other words, the power and influence of the institutions of Christianity, sort of what Ross Douthat called at one point the soft Protestant establishment of religion in the U.S. Yes, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. that is diminishing. There is no question about that. Um, and it's also no question that in some quarters, church attendance is diminishing. But I'm all I'm somewhat skeptical of the idea that what we're seeing is a real loss of kind of the authentic Christianity of the New Testament. I'm I it's going to take a little bit more convincing for me. I mean, I grew up in the 1970s and 1980s in the belt and the Bible Belt in in the rural South, and I'll tell you, it was not a religious paradise. <laughs> It was, there was a lot of violence, there was a lot of drug use, there was a lot of really uh, promiscuous sexuality at that time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there were less, you know, there, were, there was less overt um, examples of, say, like gender identity kind of controversies that you see all the time now, or less overt controversies surrounding LGBT issues. But to say that the life that I saw in rural Kentucky in the mid-1980s, was somehow distinctly more Christian, I would really dispute that. I would really dispute that. And so I think what we need to think about isn't sort of Christianity as a locus of power, um, in which case I do agree that there has been a diminishing of power. But if you think of the authentic, courageous expression of the New Testament Christian faith, of the Christian faith you see from the apostles and the early church, um, a courageous expression of gospel faith like you see in the gospels, um, I'm, I'm not convinced that that is diminishing, um, mm. in part because I'm just not convinced it was all that prevalent throughout a large chunk of American history, to be quite honest. Mm. It's not like, for example, the Christian abolitionists were welcomed with open arms, right? Mm. Mm. Even in the North, they were considered radical and dangerous in many circumstances. Um, And yet people would, you know, if you had to ask people, was America more Christian in 1850? A lot of people would say, yeah, Uh, not so clear about that. Mm. Mm. Well, David, we... Recently, um, I don't remember when this was, Josh, but we recorded an episode about an article in The Atlantic specifically specifically about carrying on relationships with people you don't agree with, how easy it is right now to just cut people out of to- your life. Toxic people, just yeah, eliminate them. Yeah, I don't them. remember yeah. what the title of Tons the article was. Tons of people was, are basically disowning their parents right now, not, not oh talking gosh, to them yeah. again. That's yeah. huge. Yep. Yeah, so um, you, know, you, you referenced this a little bit earlier, um, David, but in this time when we're, it's it, it just seems like people cannot agree people have no interest in agreeing really um, we're just so quick to stop listening to people to assume that you know what they're going to say to have your response already ready before your uh, the person you're you're dialoguing with even finishes how do you think christians who have genuine uh, sorry genuine political differences can coexist and can really learn to listen to each other and to learn from each other? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's really something that is, I think, quite convicting. I know it's, it's, the, it's convicting for me. Um, I've had to really search my own heart about this. And, and here's a question that I ask myself. And I, here's a question I think that's worth asking ourselves. If you hear somebody follows Jesus they say that I am a follower of Jesus, and you also hear that they voted for the candidate you voted against in the last election. Do you instantly feel a bond with them? In other words, is the fellow follower of Jesus trumping, or do you instantly Hmm. feel suspicion? Hmm. And I think if you instantly feel suspicion when you hear that someone voted in a different way, maybe the main thing isn't the main thing for you anymore. Hmm. Now, Hmm. That doesn't mean that everyone who professes that they follow Jesus is, you know, even a good person. But again, the test is someone, all you know about them, you know two things. They profess faith in Jesus and they voted for the opposite party. Do you feel more of a bond or do you feel more of a suspicion? And I would suggest that one of our core problems 
is that we feel more of a suspicion. And, and if that is the case, then it's on, on me to ask, is my, are my politics more important to me than my faith? Or have I mixed my politics and my faith so completely that I can't distinguish them anymore to the point where if I hear that, let's say, let's say I voted Republican and I hear someone's a Democrat, then I'm going to presume that they're not telling the truth about their faith in Jesus. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, in that circumstance, what I've done is I have really pulled my politics and my faith together in such a way that I'm expressing a shining certainty Sort of, or I'm feeling the sort of uh, fiery certainty mm. that I've got all this figured out, and that somebody who disagrees with me is inherently suspect on issues that are, quite frankly, not the same thing in many cases, and or not the same thing as um, the the fundamental gospel message itself. Mm. Mm. That's great, David. That's so helpful. And let's let's turn to the topic of social media. This is huge. Uh, you know, who's not on social media these days? It seems like everybody is. How do you use social media well, David? We we know that God, <laughs> God has given you a platform, brother. Uh, but I mean, what is what, what if we don't just want to say, I'm, not, I'm just going to totally be off it. I'm, I reject it. But yet we want to try to use it well. Do you have any tips for us? <laughs> when... I tell you what, when I figure this all out, let's have another podcast. <laughs> David, is Twitter your most pop? Is that the social social media you you use the most? Oh, for sure. Well, mm-hmm. it's where most people find my work. Um, it's where I have the biggest platform, mm-hmm. and it's also the most toxic of all the social media platforms. Oh, oh my word! I just want to jump in there and be like, first of all, I've read um, your Twitter. You know, I've I, I'm not on Twitter all that much, but um, but I am from time to time, and I cannot believe the um, the kind of criticism you get, and and it's not even legit criticism. It's just like random and weird and uh, and again snarky um yeah. and, and raw so, hatred yeah exactly it's not even like i disagree with you for these reasons it's just you're right. a terrible person or something <laughs> yeah and a pile of a ton of lies mm-hmm. so you know for me honestly uh, i i would say to um a lot of uh, i would say as a general matter to christians be very very wary of twitter mm-hmm. you know there there's all of them have, all social media has its own problems, um, you know, in different ways. I mean, TikTok, for example, not only sort of has the, the you know, the, the classic problems of social media, it can be a time suck. It's particularly addictive to a lot of people. Sure. Um, it's full of a lot of pretty lascivious content, content for example, that it will, that is, um, that people can especially young men can fall down that rabbit hole, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Instagram can premium a lot of really superficial, you know, um, a, a lot of really superficial lifestyle type content, for example. I mean, I'm just going, you, you go through, Facebook has, has become a cauldron of conspiracies. Sure. Um, but Twitter, for example, is, it, the, the very nature of it is one that uh, enables and incentivizes toxic drive-by engagement. Mm. And what's particularly <laughs> unfortunate about it is it's the social media platform of choice for our entire sort of cultural and political elite. Mm. And so the cultural and political elite of the United States are getting heavily in, uh, in sort of heavily um, immersed. They're getting immersed in this drive-by toxic culture, and it's really hurting people's souls. Mm. And so I know there are probably some listeners saying, well, David, if that's the case, why aren't you deleting your Twitter account? To which I answer, great question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, here the reason why I'm on for now is it's also the number one way in which people find my work. Mm. Um, yeah. It's the number one way in which people um, see that there's a kind of a different way, uh, at least for me, of seeing that there's a different way of trying to interact, uh, a, a different way of doing Christianity and politics. There, mm. um, our new organization, that our new media organization, the Dispatch, that we founded three years ago, would never have gotten off the ground in the way that it did without the social media platform that I have, and my colleague Jonah Goldberg, and Stephen Hayes, and Sarah Isger, that we all have. Um, so, 
In many ways, I owe a lot of my livelihood to the power of that platform. At the same time, our nation is being driven apart by it. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, the one thing that I would say is my feelings about Twitter are not alone. I'm not alone in my feelings. I would say, rarely do you see a platform more loathed by its own customers and users. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) Than Twitter. And yet sort of feel trapped in it for professional reasons. And right. I know that's a Elon super Musk doesn't unsatisfying. even want to buy it. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. Well, he goes back and forth on that. But yeah, it's it's a uh, so yeah, it's a real challenge. And there may come a time when I think really honestly the wise thing to do, even though, you know, I have, you know, a a pretty decent sized following on that social media platform, that the wise thing to do is you know, in the words of LeBron James, take my talents to South Beach or say, <laughs> take my talents to Instagram or whatever. That's right. Um, I'm still working on my TikTok dances, so that'll be a way oh, to Oh, man. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Okay. That'd be super cool. We, we, want to, we want to hear from you on Lord of the Rings in just, a, in just a minute because you're a huge Lord of the Rings fan, Tolkien fan. So Betsy and I are huge Tolkien fans. But I'll just, one last serious question, and maybe it's just a yes or no answer, but other than contending for the faith, the truth of the Bible, the truth of the gospel, the true pure gospel, is there anything more important for genuine believers in Jesus right now than unity, than seeking to actually get along with each other and stop fighting each other and fight the devil in the world? Is 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 that number one in your mind? You know, I would say, I, will, I, I would put it like this. I think that's a, a very powerful way of stating it. Um, but I would think that the number a priority love, which is which a side effect of love is unity. Mm. So mm. so if if I am prioritizing love and the fruit of the spirit, you know, in a highly contentious time when people hate each other, this should be the moment when the Christian community blazes forth as a hopeful counterculture. Yes, amen. This should be our moment. I mean, think about, is there a better moment that exists than a highly polarized time mm-hmm. for a, a community of people who are told to bless those who persecute you, who love your enemies, who are told what the fruit of the Spirit is? Is there a better time? But no, we're just a part of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I would say this, that this... And this is deeply connected to unity, is love. You know, Mm. we have a small group uh, from my church that is wonderful. It is marvelous. And we are really different politically. Mm. (laughs) We're really different. But I know that they love my family, and I hope they know that I love them and we love them. Mm. And, And I think that if you're talking about that as what is it And that's also, by the way, flows directly from the gospel, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. For God so loved the world. Mm -hmm. And so that's the that's the I think this this priority towards each other. And love doesn't mean you don't say, hey, um, I disagree with that. Like this this is wrong that that you've done, or this is cruel that you've done. Um, and that the reason why I say love more than unity, sometimes unity would say, well, don't criticize this actual bad thing that's happened mm-hmm. because if you criticize this bad thing that's happened then you'll you'll break down unity. Unity has to be built around the right thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think of putting forward, you know, again, power, a faith a power that's power of Jesus <laughs> and love and sound mind. Mm-hmm. And I I think that's a wonderful that's a that's a wonderful kind of ordering of our priorities right there. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, David, Josh and I are just really big Tolkien fans, and we've heard that you are as well. And um, we, I'm just curious to hear you talk about Tolkien. What is it? Can you name the names of the swords? I mean, that's, yeah. how, you, that's how you know. <laughs> Sting, Glamdring, Andural, Narsal. I mean, I have, I have Andural, a, an actual replica of Andural in my office right oh, now. It is, oh my <laughs> goodness, that's amazing. Yeah, it has. Um, it ha- So this was a funny story. My wife got me a replica of it for Christmas one year, but it was a stainless steel sword. It was just a decorative sword. And she could see that I was disappointed. Uh, so she... <laughs> She commissioned a sword maker in Quebec, and oh he made my. me an actual endural broadsword. And the um, and the elvish runes run down the blade, and they say in elvish, of course, 
Andur- I'm Andural forged of Narsal and may the thralls of Mordor flee before me. So yes, I'm in. <laughs> wow. So maybe fan isn't quite intense of a word uh, to describe you. So That's you've not probably intense. heard of this show called Rings of Power. Yeah. But before we even ask you about Rings of Power, I am curious what you would say. What is it about the works of Tolkien that you find so um, appealing? What, what makes them so enduring? What do you think about that? Yeah, so I wrote this whole thing about it um, called it, uh, a piece I wrote for the Dispatch called "It's Time to Remember Tolkien." Oh, and I was contrasting up. Tolkien with J., uh, George R. R. Martin, who wrote the you know the mm-hmm. the yep. Game of Thrones and House of the uh, Dragon. Yep. And I said the difference between Tolkien and Martin is Martin is the mirror and Tolkien is stained glass, and and by that I meant that. So Martin sort of shows, mm. holds up a mirror to human nature, and his works are gritty, mm. and they're dark, and they're exactly as dark as you would imagine in a world without a redeemer. Um, mm-hmm. Tolkien's work is different, and it reminds me of when you are walking through the these cathedrals in Western Europe, these beautiful cathedrals, and you'll see this incredible stained glass, and the stained glass tells a story and it's a story that it's the gospel stories, it's the stories in scripture that point to a higher truth. Mm. And so what I think of with Tolkien, I think of beautiful stories that tell a higher truth. Yes. Something that's actually in many ways more true than the mirror. Because mm. the mirror just shows us our fallen nature. Mm. But the stained glass shows us redemption. Wow. And which is the highest truth. And I think of, you know, and Tolkien's works are not like C.S. Lewis and Narnia. They're not, you know precise, yep. uh, you know, the, the, they're not exactly one-to-one. Where, where's the Aslan slash Christ figure, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. They're not exactly like that. But as Tolkien himself said, you know, these he calls them sort of deeply Catholic works that grew only more so as he worked on them. Mm-hmm. And so, so they're beautiful stories that point to a higher truth. And that's why I think they have resonated so powerfully for decade after decade after decade, and why people are so passionate about them, whether they have sort of, whether whether or not they're Christian, mm. is because it it pings that sense of eternity in their hearts as they read it. Yes, mm-hmm. and and I think that's why it's so powerful. Mm. So, um, spoiler alert to anyone who is watching Rings of Power and hasn't finished it yet. The huge series done by Amazon Which Prime. Which we don't understand why you haven't finished it yet. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but we are going to talk about that right now. Uh, David, what was your take on that series on yeah. season one? Okay, so I loved it. And I loved it against this background. I knew, number one, they if you're ta- doing a... Let's, let's, just go, let's just go ahead and acknowledge what you're about to hear is... It's not just nerdery, it's deep nerdery. <laughs> we are here for Woo-hoo. it, though. We're here for it. Okay. Okay, so here's the deep nerdery of this. So th- this is a story that is encompassing the second age of Middle-earth. Mm-hmm. The first age of Middle-earth was, yep. or was the rebellion of the Noldor and the mm-hmm. war of Ra- and the war against Morgoth. Second age is the forging of the Rings of Power, the fall of Numenor. And then the third age is the end of the third age is the Lord of the Rings story itself about yep. the War of the Rings. So... Um, the second age is thousands of years long. So this is a compressed timeline. So it's not going to be note beat by beat what you know if you're a deep Tolkien nerd. But it gets the core of the Tolkien ethos and the story exactly right. And, mm. and here's how I know if people get this or don't. It's if you're railing on the depiction of Galadriel um, in Rings of Power, you're missing it. If you're railing on the depiction of Sauron, you're missing it. And, you know, it's interesting. You really have to dive deep into Tolkien lore about this. So, you know, people are mad that Galadriel's hot-headed and impulsive and angry. Well, again, this is deep, deep. She's a Noldoran elf. Mm. Like, yep. they rebelled and left Valinor. They defied the doom of Mandos. They, she didn't participate in the kinslaying, but she defied the Valar to leave Valinor. Mm. Tolkien writes in Unfinished Tales about Galadriel, she, quote, she had dreams of far lands and dominions that might be her own to order as she would without tutelage. Mm. So this is a person, a fierce, proud, defiant, mm. elven queen who has possesses immense power and dreams of power. So you see that in this depiction. 
And then when you, the Sauron character, spoilers, he wasn't always this burning eye, cartoonishly evil <laughs> being. He could right? take a beautiful form, yeah. Yeah. Yes, Sauron, this is this is a quote from the Silmarillion. Sauron put on his fair hue, this is after the, his defeat in the War of Wrath and Morgoth's defeat in the War of Wrath, and abjured all his evil deeds. And some hold mm-hmm. that this was not at first falsely done, but that Sauron in truth repented, if only out of fear, being dismayed by the fall of Morgoth and the great wrath of the lords of the West. But he was unwilling to face judgment of the Valar. So this is again a quote, he hid himself in Middle-earth. Mm. and fell back into evil for the bonds that Morgoth had laid upon him were very strong. So this, all of this explains Galadriel's quest to find him at the start of the show, how his presence was hidden Mm. in the the show. And then this, quote, fair hue wasn't just a matter of personal appearance. Mm. He could put on a fair manner that deceived even the elves. I mean, that's how he he taught the elves to craft the rings of power. He deceived them. And so... The idea of an impulsive and headstrong Galadriel pursuing a fair-hued and deceptive Sauron is completely in keeping with the story. And then that confrontation between the two of them, I thought, was just incredibly well done. And that is way more than you wanted to hear. Oh, I think it's great. I, I, like I said, we're here for it. I'm just getting started right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Bill, Billy's about to push the red button. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, David, you don't know Betsy well, but she is a uh, athletic teaching dynamo of a lady who reminds me a lot. I, she could, she really could have made it as Galadriel. Oh. So uh, you know, <laughs> fantastic. High praise. Yeah. Oh. Well, you know, just to um, just to kind of put a bow on that discussion, I recently was on Etsy looking for something. I don't even remember what I was looking for, but of course, you know how these apps know your preferences. It's kind of scary. And um, I came across the Lord of the Rings section, and there was a really great button that you need, um, David, and it said, make Mordor great again. <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> So you might want to add that uh, along wow. in your Andriel section. So. Wow. wow. <laughs> you know, Folks. there's this one part, there, there's this last thing, there's this last thing that I would say um, about Tolkien that I think is so resonant with this time. And that is, as people feel that Christianity is diminishing in the country, a lot of people are tempted to grasp power to save American Christianity, this reach for the force of government to save Christianity. And it's really reminiscent of the conflict in in Lord of the Rings between Boromir and Faramir. You know, Boromir is the one who reaches for the power and he fails. And then Frodo presents the power to Faramir. And he says this in this moment uh, when when Frodo is essentially offering him the ring. He says, I would not take this thing if it lay by the highway not where Minas Tirith falling in ruin and I alone could save her. So using the weapon of the Dark Lord for her good and my glory. No, I do not wish for such triumphs. Hmm. And I think that that's a really potent, as I said, Tolkien resonates with higher truths hmm. that the use of the enemy's tools to defeat the enemy turn you into the enemy. And I think that that's a, an incredible insight from Tolkien, that one that we would do well uh, to remember as we think about our own relationship with power. Yeah, and, and, and who defeats Sauron in the end? It's, it's a weak yes. hobbit, totally mm. unexpected. So it's mm. fascinating. First yes. Corinthians 1. Mm-hmm. Uh, David French, this has been such an honor and a delight to have you. Friends, please check out advisory opinions, uh, good faith, the dispatch, the articles when David writes in the Atlantic, you want to read it. Um, Subscribe to the dispatch if you don't know about this incredible news organization. Uh, David, we hear you're on social media. You got a couple followers. That's what we've been told. How can they, how can they find you? Uh, just at David A. French on Twitter. Um, Easy to find me there. And I post everything that I write. Um, But uh, yes, please do also check out thedispatch.com, and uh, that's where all my podcasts are, and that's where m- most of my writing is, as well as The Atlantic. So uh, yeah, it's been a real honor to be on on the podcast. I really appreciate it. David, we're so thankful. Keep fighting the good fight for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and have a blessed day. Thanks again. Thank you. All right. Please be sure to rate, review, subscribe to Intersect if you don't mind. We'll see you next time. 
Bye-bye.